Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode and on this episode I get to speak to a very old friend. Uh, we actually tried to record uh, an episode a couple of months ago and I was super excited because he's so busy. The tech, I, We had loads of tech issues and I think they're on my side. So I want to uh, welcome back Gamal Truwa. Uh, Gamal was a somebody that I met and who inspired me just from one meeting. We went on, I think it was like a strategic diversity program uh, that uh, Gamal, I say Gamal, I've always called him G actually. So we're going to be referring to Gamal as G because it sounds, it sounds very uncomfortable for me to call you Gamal. <laughs> I know everyone knows me as G. It's almost like my friend. You're either G or G man, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but listen, G it's great to have you here. It really is good to have you here. Thank you. So we met uh, when you were the facilitator for this, one of the best diversity programs I've been in in a long time. Not least of all the content and the thinking and the depth of this program, but the stuff that happened in this program as well. Can you remember this? Yes, it was a, it was a very good, pro- it was one of the um, better programs that I run. Because, you know, mm-hmm. when you're doing this work, as you probably know, when you're in a group, it, it's it's those unexpected moments that give the greatest gift. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that's where the magic, when that happens, you just think, oh, we, we, we struck gold here. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? You Just you saying that sort of really identifies with who you are. You know, you look for the opportunity in that. You're such a positive individual. So we're going to come on to your story in a short while, but do you want to just share what happened in that program? Well, very briefly, it was um, it was about sharing stories. And I was sharing uh, sharing parts of my story in that thing. And there was an individual in the group who, shall we say, voiced his opinion. <laughs> 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 yeah, he certainly did that. Certainly Which was did. an interesting thing. It was a, it was one of those things where you sit there, and you could feel the room change, the mood in the room absolutely changed. Yeah, and, and sitting there at the front, I was like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, and basically, what he spoke about, you know, I'm a gay man, and he, he said openly, don't like gay people, don't think they should be in the job, wouldn't work with one, and I certainly wouldn't socialize with one. Those words are etched into my memories. Mm. And then I looked around the room and what I thought was interesting is how how some people suddenly decided that the ceiling need painting or their shoes were too dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Or their shoes were untied. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I remember the energy in that room. Yeah. And then then I remember my co-facilitator, I could feel her starting to explode behind me. I can feel this eruption about to, and I thought, okay, before we deal with this, I need to get everything back on track. I need to get 
everything on a level so that we can work with this, right, before it gets out of hand. So it sort of like gave everyone a break and then sat down with my co-facilitator who was just spitting feathers. (laughs) And I was trying to let her know that, you know, no, actually, this is a gift, this is a gift. We can use this. This is this is gold. This is this is this is what we're doing this for. Um, and then I had a chat with the individual. I took him across out of the room, and I said, "Right." I asked everyone to go on a break, and then I said to him, "I said I'm going to ask you a question, but before I do, I need you to know something." And he said, "What's that?" I said, "I need you to know that my self worth is not determined by your opinion." I love that. Just repeat that for people to hear that one more time. My self-worth is not determined by your opinion. So if you think you've said something that's hurt or offend me, you haven't. I'm I'm a lot more comfortable with myself than you give me credit for. And I said, having said that, why did you feel the need to say what you said? And he said, you said we should be honest. I was being honest. And I was like, okay, in the spirit of that honesty, I accept that. When we go back in the room, would you like to know the impact you had on people in the room? Yeah, I've got no problem with that. I said, good. I like that. So he got back in the room, spoke to the group, and I said, you know, this guy's interested to hear what you thought of what he said. And there's a thing I call, in my mind, I call them Argos catalog answers. Mm-hmm. These are the answers I'm supposed to say. Yeah. There's no emotion behind them. You know, you can, you, can, you can always tell when somebody's just saying something as opposed to feeling something. So everyone was going around and saying what they thought about what he said. Uh, and then it got to a woman who turned around and said, I have been in this job 28 years. I thought people like you didn't exist anymore. And she goes, in fact, I don't even want to be in the same room as you right now. And she got up and walked out. Right. And you could see the color drain from this individual's face. And I'm thinking, learning has taken place. (laughs) And that's where that was the point where the conversation got real. And I think you were one of the last people to speak. I remember. uh, I I tell you, there was a whole mixture of emotions and thoughts going through my head. And I didn't want to give a a catalog answer um, because I, I understood where the impact that his statement and his thought was having on a lot of people and, uh, and, and particularly those, those affected. Mm. But by the same token, I also wondered what was going on inside his mind and were, was he becoming a victim in all of this as well? Mm. Uh, so I remember when we had a tea break, I actually went and sat with him uh, to talk to him uh, and to see whether his perspective might have changed or whether he had any kind of yeah. uh, awareness as as to what had just happened, mm. and I think he did. I think I think you're right. I think learning did take place. It it wasn't maybe textbook learning, but it was deep learning, uh, no doubt about it. That I still remember that one experience of all the thousands of courses I probably went on. I still remember that one program for that reason. For that reason, I'd never had that happen on any other program. So, I mean, that learning didn't just take place with him. It took place with me. It took place with every single individual, including yourselves. Do you know what was interesting, right, is when we had, I don't even remember, we had external visitors coming in on one of the days. That's right, yes. And, you know, we'd done the first session in the morning and during the lunch break, the visitors came up to me and they said, what's happened? Because that, that energy was still there, wasn't it? And I said, what do you mean? They said, yeah, 
there's an energy to this group. Something's happened in this group. They could feel it. And that's how powerful the energy was. And, and for me, when I work, that's what I'm working with. I'm working with energy. Yeah, I love that. I'm not working with what you're saying. I'm working with the feeling that's in the room, the emotions that are in the room. You know, and, and the way I look at it, I said, it's, it's to take that confusion and create a symphony of understanding. Beautiful language, that. <laughs> a symphony of understanding. And talking about a symphony of understanding, um, there's an awful lot of talk um, around the police service right now. Uh, you and I were both police officers. We did th three decades. We've lived through an awful lot in the police service. We've seen an awful lot of change. And we've even heard some of the rhetoric that we're hearing now back in uh, uh, you know, in, in the past decades. But there seems to be an awful lot of rhetoric now around police culture, around accountability. There's issues around retention. I was talking to senior police officers yesterday and they were saying, you know, the retention of new new police officers is very, very poor right now. What is going on, do you think, um, in within the police service? The police have always relied on their, what I call their, their stock answers. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is how we do things, and and their answers that are that come from a very defensive place most of the time, right? And I think what's happened is you have a generation of people that are now saying, "No, we don't buy that anymore." Yeah, you know, no, this is not this is not the world we want to live in, and and you know that's not just in the police, but you're seeing that reflected in climate politics. You're seeing it reflected in gender politics. And in so many different areas, I think we're on the verge of a change, a massive revolution in change, right? And I don't think many people are really aware of what's going on. Yeah, I think you're so right, G. And I think there's something around. If you look at the leadership in the highest echelons in not just the police service, it goes way beyond the police service. And I think we've used that as an example. But, you know, I see this a lot in healthcare. I see it a lot in business and, and private sector. You and I both work across so many industries now. It's, uh, we can't just keep talking about the police, can we? But I think in the highest echelons of these organisations, you have stayed characters. You have characters who have been thinking in a certain way from that organizational perspective for like maybe two, three decades. And so they repeat the same rhetoric, the same language, the same style of communication. I was watching a chief constable speaking the other day and he was apologizing uh, for something that had happened, but his language and the style, and I just felt like saying, I wish I could go there and teach you public speaking because your tonality is wrong. You're, some of the word and phrases needs to be softened. There's no vulnerability in what they're saying. The way they come across. I call it the humanity. It's like humanizing yeah. Uh, yeah. our language, you know? Uh, so I think there's, there's something around that. And I, I know that uh, there's a lot of talk around representation and diversity. It's the stuff that you and I have heard over and over again in different language, but essentially the same rhetoric do you think we're at a time where we need to stop talking about representation as the, the, the be-all and end-all uh, as a solution? Is there something much deeper than that? Yeah, yeah. The phrase I use is they're trying to attract new fish, but they haven't cleaned the water in the pond. <laughs> I use exactly the same analogy. You and I are so connected. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing for me. Uh, the other thing is, 
They've empowered the letters up, the letters, but they haven't empowered the alphabet. Yeah. You know, sometimes when we are literally just chasing representation, we're chasing some kind of a target maybe and say we want 3% of our workforce to be BAME or, or gay or straight or whatever it might be, or, or male or female, um, what happens if the 3% out of your desperation to recruit this diverse audience that 3% comes from the easiest place that you can get it, i.e. from the same sort of community, society, area that you were born in. They speak a similar language to you. They have a similar upbringing to you. So for me, diversity is is where you have a diversity of thought. That's much more important for me uh, than to have this demographic diversity, this rainbow of diversity that actually thinks exactly the same as Previously, it made people that look different but think the same as me. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And aren't we seeing that in politics right now? I think there's there's a step before that that we always skip over, right? Before we start looking at representation and recruitment, we need to understand why it's not happening. Yes. Right, and we don't focus on the why. We don't understand why have you got a culture that does not embrace this? Why have you got a culture? That, that 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 struggles with this, right? You get that right, the rest will follow. Absolutely. And for me, it's all about culture. Get your culture right. It's it's that thing, because when I hear that, oh, we're trying to recruit more X, whatever X group is, I'm sitting there thinking, you're putting the pressure on that group. You're saying to that group, we can't change until we get more of you. And that's the wrong way round. It's a wrong end of the telescope for me. And, 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 you know, even b before we start looking at the culture for me, I think there's another step before that. There's another step around really, really understanding what your values are. What yeah. is it that you stand for as an organization? Now, we've all seen organizations, haven't we, where we have pretty posters. We, you know, you and I both go into classrooms, in organizations, in meeting halls, and there's always going to be some kind of poster up there. Sometimes they're really beautiful and they've got all these values on there. You go onto a website, there's all these wonderful values there, uh, but are they living the values? Yeah. More often than not, they're not. More often than not, the values are just a, a collection of words. So really getting into the values uh, part of your organization. Embedding the values Embedding as well. the values. And then the culture sits on top of that. Yeah, but the yeah, culture yeah. becomes a personality of your organization. It becomes your brand, really. Somebody once said uh, years ago, and it used to be a phrase we used to use a lot in, in, in the police. They said that um, if you can go to the night duty van driver at Brixton, and ask him at two o'clock in the morning what are the values of the organization. If he can tell you or she can tell you, that's when you know you've cracked it. That's when you know you've got your values right. Yeah. And yet I have sat in classrooms with very, very senior people from organizations, asked them what the values are, and they have said, they've just literally pointed at the, the poster and said, those are our, our values. And I said, so what do they mean? And then they become stumped. How are you living them? How are you living them? How are you aligned to these values? And and by the way, what are your values as an individual? And where do they blend? Yeah. Where's the, where's the connection? Where's the alignment with these values? How do you know that you're in the right organization? Uh, and these are the kind of questions that really do stump people. And it it, it always shocks me. Why are they so um, why, why are they struggling to answer this question? I don't get it because this should be, 
maybe because we've both been on a growth journey and we're very self-aware and all of these kind of things, but shouldn't leaders be that level of self-aware? Shouldn't they be thinking at that level, particularly when they get to very senior levels of the organization? You know, have you seen, I don't know if you've seen it because it was, it's been all over LinkedIn and I posted it as well. I reposted it rather about Virgin Airlines, right? Where they brought out the gender neutral uniform and name tags can be as you wish your pronoun. And they had, you know, in, in an industry where they're struggling to recruit, they had 100%, 100% success rate in recruiting. And I wonder what their retention rate is as well. Yeah. These are two very, very big issues right now uh, across so many organizations. Firstly is a retention rate. Uh, more organizations are losing their staff at the early part of the organization. So they've invested heavily in recruiting these staff, invested heavily in training this talent, and then losing this talent and then having to invest again to get more talent. Because they haven't done step one. They haven't done step one. And that's what, and then they're scratching their heads and saying, why are we losing talent? And then they blame the people coming into the organization. Then they'll say, oh, they're from Generation Z. And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't like staying in for 20, 30 years like we used to do. Well, you know, generations change. That's a generational thinking. It doesn't make them bad people. And I think, you know, th- these senior people in organizations are, have, have lost the ability to think beyond their own generation as well. I think that's, that's something. But if you get the culture right, as you're saying, then this kind of thinking is almost automatic, isn't it? I mean, a friend of mine is a CEO in a, a company in Nigeria. I was talking to him and he says that they've had to change their whole culture because especially from the lockdown, the lockdown had a big impact on how people, especially younger people worked. And he said, and people are turning up and they're asking questions like, do I have to come into work every day? And he said, initially he was like, yes, it's a job. You come in every day. But he said, He's had to look at things, actually. The lockdown has taught us we can work in different locations. You know, we're in the age of the digital nomad, right? If I've got a Wi-Fi and a laptop, I can virtually work in most, in a lot of jobs. I can work anywhere, right? The manual jobs, okay, yes, you still have to go in, right? But then there's people now saying, actually, if I don't have to be here every day, if I can do this job from home, why can't I work from home? You know, here's the thing. The danger of talking to you, G., is that we get into a conversation, we're getting so deep that I don't ask the question that I wanted to ask in the first place. (laughs) And one of the questions, and I'm going to ask it now because I've just noticed it again. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, you've got to bring this out. Sitting over your right shoulder is something something that most people will recognise. It's a BAFTA award. Um, Now, you are a BAFTA award-winning friend of mine, so I'm quite proud to be able to say that. Uh, there was a story, uh, a film, a documentary uh, done about your life. You have quite a, a unique life. You know, your story, when you told it at that particular uh, course that I went on, stayed with me forever. I'd love for you to just share the highlights of your story. I know it's a long story, <laughs> but could you just share the highlights of your story and what, and what led to that BAFTA? Yeah, I'll, I'll turn it round and say, I won't share too much of the story because people can go watch the film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and just mention the film where 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 they can watch it and stuff yeah, like that. It's called uh, the Black Cop, uh, and it's on YouTube, and it's on the Guardian channel on YouTube. We're going to put a link to the YouTube to direct to the film on the description for this uh, podcast, so people can find it. It's worth watching. Sharing the story is about one of the things I think we don't do is we don't really 
understand the impact of some of these things. And I've been privileged to have had a life, or especially the, the last 25 or so years, where I've been able to make sense of a lot of that stuff. I've been in an environment and, and been on programs where I've had to really look at myself, and I've turned that trauma of my life into a tool for change. Um, somebody put the other day in our life, he said, you use your trauma as a power. And, and and to me, that's what it's about. And my, my story is about saying that, you know, this is how, you know, I was, I didn't have the, if there is a normal upbringing, I didn't have a normal upbringing. Um, I, I had a very troubled childhood. Um, I was fostered and then I was, uh, highlights, fostered, abused, traumatized, uh, beaten, social services became part of the family. I was then sent to Nigeria um, or tricked into going to Nigeria, where I spent some part of that living homeless under the streets of Lagos, under a bridge, um, managed to find a way back to the UK. And I'm giving you just very brief highlights. If people want more, there's so much more to it. What we've got the BAFTA for is owning your story. Uh, that's what the film does. I mean, when I made the film initially, or when we made the film initially, it was funny because when I, when I watched it with the director, I was looking at it and I could see all the things that were missing. Like, you know, it's a 25-minute movie. You know, and I was like, oh, no, this is not going to work, da, 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 da. Until we went to a screening, and it was in Manchester. And the screening was on, and I was sitting at the back. And the impact it had on the audience was phenomenal. The conversations that it generated were incredible. Um, and I thought, that's what, that's where this film is. That's the magic of this film. You know, it has started so many conversations, uh, talking about things and what, what people relate to, what people pick up on or the feedback I get a lot is that you don't come from a place of bitterness or anger. Uh, you know, I have every right to be bitter. I have every right to be angry, but this is not about bitterness and anger. This is about compassion. Yeah. Because where, where does bitterness and anger get you? Exactly. Exactly. This is about, you know, and, and I've been asked that, you know, so many times I said, this is not about blame. I'm not looking for restitution. I'm not looking for, for any compensation. I'm looking for us to move forward and say, look, we need to address this and move forward. We need... We need to be honest about this and we need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable enough to learn. And vulnerability is, is a power. It's, it, for me, vulnerability is what builds that bridge of trust. And when you have trust in any kind of a relationship or in any kind of culture, you're going to have a much better communication in that culture, a much better relationships developing in that culture. And then you can start working on all the other things that we're talking about in terms of, you know, the diversity, diversity of thought, creativity, innovation, all of the things that that leads to. But yeah, ladies and gents, I absolutely recommend that you watch The Black Cop, 25 minutes of pure power. Yeah, it really is. I've watched it about two or three times now, G, and uh, and I knew your story, and, and I didn't look for the gaps because, for me, it really encapsulated everything that you've ever told me in all the meetings that we've ever had. 
but in a nice condensed 25 minutes. And because it's condensed, it's even more powerful sometimes. <laughs> you know, it hits you. Uh, and and actually this film is being used, isn't it, to, in several police forces. The, the, they're getting people to watch this now. It's become my competition. <laughs> yeah, I need you I mean, in you, you, film. They're not inviting you in now. They're <laughs> just putting your film on. <laughs> Damn that film. <laughs> yes. well, maybe not. It's not such a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. It's all very well watching the film, you know, and putting the film on for, in all seriousness, for people, but it still has to be unpicked, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and, I hope I hope organisations aren't just making uh, getting people to watch that film and saying and ticking the box and saying hey that's done now that would be completely counterintuitive and counterproductive and, and counter everything that, that your story stands for and it's, it's not just police organisations that are using it you know it's, it's not a police film no it, this is a human film this is about humanity it's about one young man's journey to towards enlightenment i guess you know and, and and understanding forgiveness and using all of that story to to bring about change in the world really but i stress again that for any organization wanting to you know think about using this film also contact g because you need a narrative to it as well you need to use the film then start with the film to get into the depth of it all uh, I did a, a piece of work with a university which was getting getting comfortable talking about race. So it's about getting comfortable talking about uncomfortable topics. When you want to change your culture, you have to go through that level of discomfort. Have to. There is no easy bridge towards changing anything. You have to go through discomfort, don't you? Oh, oh God, totally. I mean, I, I learned that from a guy in America called Lee Manoir. Mm-hmm. He's a diversity facilitator. And, you know, one of the things I learned, if you want to get to the prize, you have to embrace the fear, go through the fear, the anger, the frustration, the guilt, the shame, the defensiveness. You know, you have to go, the anger, you have to go through all of those things to get to the promised land. But I think a lot of organisations are too scared to go through that anger, that 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 the, those high levels of emotions, that hard work, and that's what puts them off and stops them from you know changing cultures. That's where they need skilled facilitators. They need somebody who can hold their hand through the process, right? Yeah. If you haven't got a skilled facilitator, then you're actually potentially doing more damage than good. Absolutely. Uh, so what they use, they'll use their internal people um, to drive something forward. And it's going to get very clunky. And actually, it, it, it can become quite mechanistic in its approach. Uh, and you don't deal with some of the emotions that arise from all of that, effectively, maybe. Uh, so it actually puts people off sometimes. You know, I've been on diversity programs myself where people have come out angrier than they did when they went on the diversity program. So, so for me, you're right. Um, I've done a lot of work with organizations where I've said, look, I'll hold your hand through the process of this culture change. But of course, they a, either don't want to spend the money or B, they just don't want to face, they don't want to look in the mirror. They don't want to face those fears, even if somebody's holding their hand. And you're right, you've got to get the right facilitators on board. You've got to get the right kind of people on board. You can't change what you won't acknowledge. Yeah, yeah. Very, very powerful. 
Very powerful. So if there was one thing, if there was one thing, now this is going to be putting you on the spot, really. If there's one, only if one thing that an organisation is prepared to change right now that was going to make them a better organisation and more human-centred, what would that one thing be? I know there's a whole host of things that you'll say, but one thing. Listen to your staff. Right? You know, a lot of this stuff is about your staff, about your people. Right? You know, so... Don't tell your people what to do. Listen to them. Engage with them. Engage with them. They'll tell you how it feels to work in your organization. And if you if you bring them on board, they have the solutions. They're dealing with the culture every day. I buy into that. But if you're going to ask your staff the questions, then you've got to create the environment for them to be able to feel confident talking about it. And you, ha- you have to be prepared to listen to it, right? And that's the c- courage, the courage to listen. Because sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. It's it's basically somebody holding a mirror up to yourself and you can see all the warts and all. You have to be able to sit with the discomfort to get to the gold. Gee, every time I talk to you, um, it is a conversation full of wisdom. It really is. Um, I can't believe 30 minutes have flown by. Um, I literally could carry on talking to you. I know you and I can talk for like hours and hours and hours, uh, but it's just full of wisdom. I hope the listeners have taken some wisdom away. I want to re-encourage people to follow the link that we're going to put on this podcast to The Black Cop on YouTube. Absolutely recommend that you watch this film. At least watch it a couple of times. You're going to miss some some stuff because it is so much history condensed into such a short space of time that that you are going to miss things uh take it out into your organizations show it to your staff like other organizations are doing but don't assume that that's that's the end of the culture change that you want to bring about there is work to be done on top of this film and you need somebody to hold your hand to walk your organization through the process and uh, you know in this regard G would be the perfect person to do that I'd absolutely recommend him thank you so much G as always thank you thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on LinkedIn take care have a great day